we stand and sing? God save the Queen. Long to reign over us. Isn't she doing well? Um, and I thank God for that as well. I look forward to her speech in a few days' time. But the, this uh, passage we've just had um, describes a king who will reign forever and ever and ever. And of course, uh, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II won't achieve that great feat, uh, however long her reign has been up till now. It's a passage that's describing a great darkness, and then in the past tense, a light has dawned on them. There's great darkness, and then a light has dawned. And as we'll see in a moment as we work through the passage, the past tense is not because it's happened in the past at the time he's writing, but because he's absolutely sure that this is going to be. And I wonder today, as we approach the week that we're all approaching, what your verdict on our contemporary world is. Whether you see it as a place full of light, or a place in a grey area, or a place of great darkness. You may see it in all different ways. It might depend which newspaper you read as to, to how, you, how you see the week ahead. And the sense of this book is, there is coming a light that is going to extinguish the darkness progressively and absolutely forever. And let's pray as we begin to look at this together. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray for your revelation as we look at the scriptures today. We thank you for them. We thank you that they speak to us. We thank you that your Bible is alive and living and active. And we pray that you help us to understand the context in which these words were written and also more about the context in which we live in as well. May my words and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord. Amen. I find the uh, lecterns uh, too short for me these days, uh, but it uh, seems to be right for everyone else, so there we go. Um, this is a time period around 730 years before Christ. And if you've picked up the story so far, uh, Israel is, is a country that's been appointed by God to be a light to all the nations. Isaiah is going to say that. They're a light to everyone. Why are they a light to everyone? Well, in the beginning of the story, God said, go forth and multiply. Just all of humanity, just do, do your best. And if you follow the story through at all, you'll know that quickly we fell over on our faces and got it wrong. So he starts again with a new family and says, well, let's uh, see how you do. And, uh, and that family, the father ends up drunk in a cave and his daughter sleep with him and have children with him. This is the stuff of the book of Genesis. Not a great start to uh, a moral universe, but it's the universe the Bible describes. And then he picks on one person, the person of Abraham and his wife Sarah. And he changes their names to Abraham and Sarah. And he says, I'm going to make you into a great nation, even though they're old and they're childless. And eventually, after 20 years, they have a child of promise. And gradually from that one uh, seed, God creates a family of, uh, through his grandchildren of 12 sons. And those 12 sons become 12 tribes. And those 12 tribes uh, come out of the, uh, the land of uh, Egypt through mighty deliverance. And they get the law from God. And the law is something that gives them a way of knowing right from wrong. And if they keep this law, then they reflect something of God's glory. And there's one point in the story here I just wanted to pause. 
because it's the moment that the law is given to them. Uh, Moses, their hero, goes up a mountain and he encounters God face to face. And this is why it's key for this passage. When he comes down, it's like light is shining from his face, so much so that they say, put a veil on Moses. We can't stand to look at you face to face. When he encounters God, he encounters light. And the light rests on him so much that it shines from him and dazzles people. Now hold on to that thought of the light shining on Moses. Because what happens from Moses' time onwards is the people walk into, into this new land, into Israel. They conquer Canaan and other things, and it's a whole other story. But through their judges, they have to fight different battles. And one of them is referred to in our passage in verse 4, the day of Midian. The day of Midian are some conquering tribes trying to destroy the Israelites. They, they're the ones with the high technology of their day. Uh, they had the equivalent of good tiger tanks. Uh, it was camels. They, they came in on camels. They were the raiders. And a, a man called Gideon is raised up to rescue the Israelites from the Midianites. And they work through these different judges. And some of them are good, some of them are bad. Generally, they get to be pretty indifferent. Samson's one of them. Deborah's another one of them. And at the end of the book of Judges, it says, everyone does what is pleasing in their own eyes. No one does what the Lord wants. And that has a sort of contemporary feel to it, doesn't it? Everyone does whatever's pleasing in their own eyes because they're worth it. (laughs) Because why shouldn't I? I determine my own life. It feels quite contemporary. After a while, the people go, what we need is a strong leader. Um, because we've had two weak leaders. If parliamentary democracy is not good enough for us, we want an executive. <laughs> we want someone who will establish the rule and make things happen. And so they vote for uh, the equivalent of a, a Trump or another character over here, perhaps. And they, they, they get this man called Saul. He's good-looking, charismatic, tall. But in his heart, he's, uh, he's got a sort of a coward's approach as well. God raises him up, makes him a king, Uh, But quickly, he goes his own way and assumes more authority than he should do. Takes on more power than he should do. He does what the priest only should do, because he assumes he can do everything. And darkness comes more into the land. In comes King David, the one that God anoints and raises up. And he does okay, very well in many ways, but also great darkness in him. And along comes his son, who's the wisest person ever, but also has incredible darkness in him. He marries 300 women, has 700 concubines, and brings in the worship of evil things into the land of Israel and brings up his children appallingly. His son, Rehoboam, becomes the next king over over Israel. And Rehoboam's a young ruler, and a young ruler who gets it totally wrong. People come to him and say, give us a break, guys. Yeah, it's been hard working for Solomon. We've built temples and palaces, and it's been you know, an amazing time, but we just need to chill out now and end to austerity. And he's like, well, I'm going to go away and think about this. And he goes and talks to his advisors in Parliament or wherever. And he listens to the old ones, and they say, yeah, give the guys a break. And then he listens to the young ones, and he say, no, we're, we're, we're making it in here. Let's increase the taxes. Increase the burden on them. We're going to flog the poor so that we can be affluent. And that causes a split in Israel between ten tribes and two tribes. 
And the ten tribes go off and become what's called Israel. And the two tribes become what's called Judah. And the two tribes are the line of David still. David's uh, descendants stay in that land, Rehoboam's children. But ten tribes are sort of lost. And at this stage where we're here in the book of Isaiah, those ten tribes have gone further out of kilter with God than the two tribes of Judah. They've had uh, kings like King Ahab, who Elijah goes and encounters and pulls down fire from heaven on. They've had kings who have gotten away from God. And one of the fascinating things, if you read the parallel books of uh, 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings and Chronicles, is that some of the kings who are incredible in history in terms of what they have achieved, in terms of how wide and big and broad their land is and how affluent they are, get just a few verses in God's story. And one of them is Ahab's own father. Just a few verses for the most successful king since Solomon. But in God's eyes, he's a dismal failure. It doesn't matter what the bottom line is on the accounting. If their hearts have gone way away from God and way away from the poor and way away from the marginalized and the foreigner, God is not happy with them. And his judgment comes upon them. And at this stage, those ten tribes have just been decimated by the great superpower of their day, by Assyria. And darkness has come between Galilee and the Mediterranean. Samaria has been devastated by this marauding army. And Isaiah's been predicting it and prophesying it. And now he says to them, a great darkness has come into, into this land, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. People walking in darkness. And you can... Imagine, can't you, the darkness has been in a land that's been conquered by a marauding, invading army. just feels like everything's lost. Everything's struck down. The places where you used to go for worship, no longer there. The places where you put your security in, no longer there. Other people in the homes that you used to live in, standing there strong while you're devastated. And into this situation, the Judean king uh, that Isaiah is prophesying to is trying to work out what to do as well. Does he sell out to the superpower or does he go to another power to look for help? Or does he do what we heard last week, which he's supposed to turn to God for help? And of course, we, we know the story. He doesn't turn to God for help. Out of fear for the big bad world, he goes to another part of the big bad world and ask for help from that. The big bad wolf's knocking at his door, so he goes to the marauding lion and says, come and save me. That's a never a good story for the three little pigs, is it? And so here, we have darkness. And the thing about the Bible, the Old Testament, as you read it, is it's tempting to think, I wonder if this is a story about me, or... You might think, I wonder if this is a story about the people that it was written to. Fundamentally, it's a story about, about God and who God is and his relationship to us around. And the, the thing about the people described through this, uh, these eras that we've, we've walked through this morning is they're just like us and just like what we see around us today. It's uh, election week and... Um, it's almost impossible to be political from the pulpit because I can advise you who to vote for even if I thought I had the permission to do so from the front. You choose your own darkness. 
You want somebody who's racist to one group or racist to a graphic group? Someone who doesn't care about truth or someone who, whose truth seems distorted? It's, it's your choice. And I think we're in a shocking place in our country. Not many people are very happy about it. We have, we have a saviour described in our, our gospel who is the way, the truth, and the life. And a public office that doesn't care about truth. One of the saddest things on the telly this week was someone uh, turning up where one of the candidates arrived in his town saying, I don't really care what you say, I'm going to vote for you anyway. And something's happened in what we've called the post-truth era, where we've moved further away from truth. And actually, any search for truth, because God is truth, is a search for God. And any time someone goes for integrity, they're going for God. And as Christians, we should be going, wow, it's wonderful when someone has integrity, when someone goes for truth, because that feels to us like the sort of thing God would do. That feels like a good thing, doesn't it? Truth is good. Truth is not just random or my truth and your truth. There is truth of a matter. Lies matter. They matter immensely. And so darkness is something that comes around again and again throughout history. And occasionally, it gets invaded by light. And that's what this uh, passage is talking about. The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. There's an incredible confidence about the light that is coming. They have seen it. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. So what is this light? Go down a few verses. For us, a son is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And we know, because this is our reading at the uh, Candles by Carolite service, that this is Jesus, who is referred to here, this God's King, who is coming into the world. He's described in the book of Daniel, written uh, uh, sort of a bit later, two, two centuries later than this, as being like a, a tiny rock that comes into the world. And this rock knocks over different kingdoms. Daniel has this, this sort of vision that he describes. It's in the, in the, in the eyes of King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is, is the biblical character that some uh, American Christians think that, that Donald Trump's been like, this sort of non-believing uh, character who's been raised up by God to do his own purposes. Like, Nebuchadnezzar has this vision of a gold head and then silver and then a bronze and then iron on the feet and this rock comes to this statue, and this statue represents the, the great empires of the day and the days to come, of Babylon, of Persia, of, uh, of the Assyrians, and then the Roman Empire. And when the rock, which is Jesus, strikes it, it all comes tumbling down. And this tiny little rock, the gospel of Jesus, the Prince of Peace, the Mighty Counselor, the Everlasting Father, six centuries after Daniel has that dream and prophecy, then he says it keeps growing. And that rock becomes a mighty mountain, which no one can overcome. And 
one of the things that we're facing now in our nation in, in time to come is the end of what I might call like a little mirror. Do you have a little vanity mirror? And you see everyone who, I guess, is a baptized believer or someone who carries Jesus in their heart in some way, it's like they've got a little mirror in their hands as they walk around the world. And the great light of the world is up there shining. And these little mirrors just sort of flash the light on the nation. And sometimes they get it totally wrong. They make a total mess of things. But more often than not, it brings light into the world we're in. A love of truth. A love of integrity. A love of peace. A love of justice. A love of righteousness. But as more and more of those mirrors get cracked or hidden or destroyed we can expect more darkness in our land. It's cyclical. It comes in waves. We have the dark ages, similar time. We have reformations, more light. We have uh, the time before Dickens, where he comes as a prophet and says, come on, we've got to treat orphans better. And then we have the, the rise of people like Elizabeth Fry and others, and uh, Wilberforce and Shackleton bringing more light, shining in. The Salvation Army a document over 120 years ago was called In Darkest England and Beyond. That was the mission they discerned. It was dark. It's always darkness. Always darkness. Why? Because it lives right within us. But the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And the more they choose to reflect it, the more it will shine. And yet, whether they're choosing to or not, this verse predicts, promises, and same with the Daniel passage, that of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. His reign is increasing. You can't squash out the gospel of Jesus. I suppose in my voting time, this is probably the, the first time where there isn't a potential candidate for prime minister who would say that the Christian faith defines them in some significant way. I'm reading an interesting article on the current prime minister that he's fundamentally defined by the classical mythology of his school upbringing, where the heroes sleep with who they want, do what they want, they're, they're the hero of the thing and just bring chaos around them. Jeremy Corbyn, uh, Marxist and atheist, although when the leaders of political parties were interviewed by the Church Times recently. Of the three main parties, he was the only one who mentioned the name of Jesus in his interview. Fascinating. This is the first time I can remember where there's not a potential prime minister who, in some serious way, would say he wants to reflect, or she wants to reflect, something of, uh, of this book. And I suppose it's been a long time coming, hasn't it? because they've been against the grain of culture. And in many ways, thank goodness, God's given us such grace that the light's carried on. But we live in our era in a legacy of a world where a lot of these lights were shining. And institutionally, the mirrors were established. Prayers in public office, prayers in schools, uh, the coronation, the vow of the sovereign to be the, the supreme defender of the Church of England, the established position of the Church of England. These are all things that have sort of kept 
light reflecting into the nation, sometimes well, sometimes badly. But we can expect in the coming decades that we're walking into a different era. We have moved past what was once called Christendom or living comfortably in our own land. And as Isaiah is speaking, the, the northern tribes, they're off into exile. And two centuries later, the Judean tribes are also off into another exile, into Nebuchadnezzar's exile in Babylon. And our lot now, Christian people, is not really uh, to define and run the country in the way that it probably was under Gladstone or uh, that sort of era. Our lot now is to work out how do we seek the peace of the city? How do we promote what's right, what's just? But as the sort of aggravants from the side, the agitators, the people who will not tolerate untruthfulness, who will hold people to a higher account, the people who will not tolerate the marginalization of the most oppressed, nor the seeking after destructive philosophies. And it's not an easy tightrope to walk through, is it? You see, you watch almost any film, any, any movie, there's a sense of uh, a great narrative of the 20th century that we've been looking for a hero. Either it's John Wayne riding in as a cowboy, or it's Batman turning up at Gotham City, and through great violence, they achieve a sort of uh, security or peace. Built into our narrative is this sense of hoping and seeking for a hero to emerge and deliver us from oppressive forces or the great tirade of the unwashed mass who might invade our nation, whatever narrative's been sold to you. And we have this sort of, who's going to save us? And to some, that was the, the Farage position, is going to save us from the unwashed coming into our nation. To some, it's, it's another philosophy on the other extreme. There's, a, there's this longing for a hero, isn't there? in our culture, that somehow it must be sought out And the problem is that darkness is right within all of us. And the light in this verse isn't. It's not a classic Hollywood movie. It's not a yin-yang thing. It's not a Mariah Carey search for the hero inside yourself. It's not a Disney princess hero movie where she rises up and destroys people because she finds this incredible confidence to, to arise with the light that's already in her. And this says that the light needs to come to us externally. And it's echoed through the scriptures. St. Paul in Ephesians says that we, without Christ, are dead, depraved, doomed, and deceived. We are in darkness, in desperate need of someone to turn the light on. I was cycling before dawn this morning with our, our dog, and he had a flashing light on his back as he uh, ran along to Richmond uh, Park along the river as I cycled. And uh, in that darkness, this little flashing light was uh, really easy to see. Quite a good thing, really. is his black dog, and I'd probably have died otherwise. Uh, and then the sun came up, and suddenly everything is visible. And the great light, 
that shines here. It's supposed to evoke the great light of creation, the sun in the sky. And when the great light appears, then you can really, really see. Right now, in this age where the kingdom of God is still expanding despite all odds, feels like there's flashing lights in the darkness. Jesus said, you're the light of the world. You've got a candle. Don't hide it. Let those mirrors shine, if you like. But there is a day coming where actually the great hero is coming back. The everlasting God. The mighty counselor, the prince of peace. He's coming. And it says the zeal of the Lord of the hosts will do this. He is going to right every wrong. He's going to hold everyone to account for the words they've said and done. And that is the hope that we're looking for. Christian people, we are, in this political week, in deep exile. We're in deep exile, make no mistake. This is not commonly described as a Christian country anymore. When people are trying to describe it, they describe it as a pluralist country. And there's good and bad about that. I want to be welcoming. Really, they mean it's a secular humanist society, the people who say that, though. Not particularly tolerant of any of the religions. But even in exile, a light has dawned upon us. And of the increase of his government, there will be no end. So watch out, hold on, look. Because the deliverer is coming and is already here. And is doing wonderful things in our midst, despite whatever you see going on on the news. May God bless his word to us. And may anything that shouldn't have been said or is unhelpful fall away in Jesus' name.